Racing. Green light, they're set to go. Green light's on. Set for a start. Kablenz is holding on. Cut glory for Kablenz. But it is all heart style Rico, and he is going to absolutely bolt the Melbourne Cup in. It's bonus episode time on the Green Light on Premier Racing podcast as we take a deep dive with superstar greyhound trainer and preparer Robert Britton. He was born into a family of now racing royalty and we're happy to welcome him onto the podcast. How are you, Rob? Yeah, good. Thanks, James. Talking about, mate, the start of greyhound racing from you. Let's let's wind the clock back right to the beginning. Obviously, you're born into greyhounds to some extent. What What are the first memories of greyhounds and at what point in your life did you think this is exactly what I want to do? Well, you're going back a long time, James, <laughs> unfortunately. But uh, uh, my dad got a, a brood bitch uh, in the mid early to mid-60s and uh, uh, put her in pup, and we had 12 pups, I think. That was uh, in the family with Linda, Jeff, and Ian and myself. Um, we grew up with those pups in the next litter and the next litter, so that's where we started. Um in, in the mid sixties, I guess. Uh, in um, you know, I went out to work, and um, in around about I think ninety five, I was a hobby trainer with one or two dogs in the backyard. And uh, unfortunately, the company I worked for shifted uh, to Furniture Gully, so I I bit the bullet. I was forty years old and said, "No, nah, I'll have a go at professional training." So that's uh, uh, twenty six years ago. So I've been a professional ever since. Have there, have there been any moments where you thought maybe it wasn't the right decision or has it just been all smooth sailing? Obviously, we look back now, in the, in especially the last few years, where you had some of the greatest stayers of all time, but was was it always smooth sailing as a, as a full-time trainer? No, James, it's never uh, smooth sailing. The moment you think you've got this game beat, it'll jump up and bite you. Uh, you know, you have your, your good weeks, your bad weeks, your good years and your bad years, and, um, you know, and it's... It, it's all relative to what dogs you've got at the time, I guess. Um, if you if you do the same thing and you've got a routine, well, you don't change from it. Uh, I guess it's just a matter of what dogs you've got at the time. But, you know, in the bad times, we've been able to tread water and uh, and survive. And then, as I said, then you make hay when the, you have the good times. But, you know, you go through them and even today, um, probably this year is probably as bad of a year as I've ever had. And, and again, that's how it works, but you've got to be optimistic and keep going. Do you think it almost is similar to, to what happens in the AFL, for example? It's almost like you need that next run of draft picks to come through and, and that next, I guess, you know, generation of stock that could potentially change things? Yeah, look, it, it certainly is that. Uh, I think most professional trainers that train for other people are, are reasonably ruthless in that the the dogs at the bottom of the ladder, they've got to go, so you're always making way for new stock. And that sort of keeps you going pretty well. But, again, if you try to keep dogs, and I guess in the last year or two years I've decided to try to have a lot more of my own dogs, and probably it's not a great idea. It's what I want to do, but what it does is some of the dogs you keep uh, and you don't send away are probably not as good as what you've had before. Now, I didn't want to prepare too much for this uh, this deep dive, Rob. I wanted it to just be more of a chat and more, a, I guess, a learning from, from my perspective about somebody who's had such an incredible career and an incredible life in greyhound racing as well. But the last sort of 10 or 15 years, I've been able to sit there and just idolise what you've been able to do as a trainer. But prior to that, I don't know a lot about 
Rob Britton as a trainer. Can you tell us about those first sort of 10, 15 years where you did take up full-time training and were there any feature wins? Were, were there any days of success or was it a, a pretty tough battle to the top? How would you describe those first few years as a, as a full-time trainer? Um, James, I was pretty lucky in that Dad um, was a good trainer and, and a top trainer in the late 80s and he got a job in Macau as a, uh, a trainer in Macau. So some of Dad's owners came over to me at that point and that's when I, I took up full-time training. Uh, and again, at that time, you know, they one of the owners, Tony Devola, unfortunately passed away a few months ago. He uh, he bought dogs like Barbariot and Ravello and Iago. Now, you know, Ravello won a Geelong Cup and Iago won a uh, New South Wales, uh, what's called the Pause of Thunder today. Um, and, you know, Gun Fury, who won a Warnable Cup. So I was very lucky to get those owners. And I guess uh, without uh, Dad moving away, that wouldn't have happened. And was there any, any time in that, that early point that you thought you weren't going to get there and win those big races? Or did it happen to the point that it was just full-time trainer, handy dogs came in and, and that sort of kicked your career off in the right right direction? Yeah, look, I think you try to keep a standard. My standard has always been I want a dog that can race in the city. Uh, and you're not really looking for that group dog along the way. They come along... Um, you know, they, or they don't come along. But at the end of the day, if you've got a dog running in the city, you'll survive. Now, again, we've just been lucky that uh, by trying to keep that standard, uh, that the better dogs have actually come along to run in group races along the way. Now, you've had an incredible 26 years, as you say, full-time training, and you set up a second kennel in the US. Can you describe to me a little bit about the reasoning behind that, how that operation happened, and was it your son, Tim, who was actually working there for some time? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, I, I bought a um, I bought a property over there um, probably seven or eight years ago, and I've only just recently sold it. I think that COVID sort of uh, um, made it very made, made it impossible to travel back and forth. But um, uh, I, I bought I've been going over to America for over twenty years, um, twice a year because of the the national uh, the annual oh, sorry twice a year meet they have over there. In, in Abilene, Kansas. Uh, in its heyday, there was 800 dogs uh, went around the track twice and then they put them in the auction ring. I got really enthusiastic about that. Bought a few home. Um, one of them turned out to be UC Me Typhoon, which is the mother of Fanta Bale. Um, and, and even uh, a bitch called Sequoia uh, through a, a bitch that's uh, the grand dam of uh, uh, Christo Bale and and Jarek Bale and those. So I bought some pretty good bloodlines back out of that auction. But going over there all those times, you get to know the people, and I was fairly confident that uh, I could set up and, and operate over there by rearing, breeding, rearing, and sending the dogs off the race. You were telling me before we hit record as well about the uh, the international racing that they had here in Australia that I was unaware of. I was only about, I think, eight years old at the time. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that gave you the idea to then go and make the move to, to set up a kennel as well in the US? Yeah, in the late 90s, we had uh, what they called the International Top Gun, where uh, a representative out of England, Ireland and Australia came out here for, I think it was uh, three or four years in a row. Um, it The second year, the they asked me to take the, those international dogs and train them for the Top Gun. 
Um, I think one of them ran second in the Top Gun, but in general, they weren't incredibly successful. But at the same time, uh, with those, uh, the international Top Gun, there was 20, uh, sorry, 100 or 200 international visitors coming out here um, to, to watch that race and, and have a tour at the same time. And I got to know them really well. And that's, that's where um, I decided I, I had to go and see them and see what they do. And, uh, you know, I went to Ireland and to America and, uh, and, and great relationships. And that's how we started. Was it hard running two kennels, one in Australia, one in America? I, I know personally, Rob, was it, was it challenging at times to have the two running at the one time? Yeah, it was. I, I guess uh, while my son was over there, it wasn't too bad. Um, you know, you can talk on the phone every day and um, talk through problems and work things out. But in general, my son had visa problems, had to come home, and then COVID hit. And it got to the stage where, uh, uh, you know, the remoteness just didn't work. Um, and the, right now, the tail end of those dogs is racing. I think I've got three dogs still racing over there. But at the, at the probably at the uh, at the height, we've probably had 20 dogs. But the other thing too is we were rearing dogs to put through that auction. So we were actually greyhound farmers rather than racing people. And, and that's a re, that's another uh, uh, element we don't get in Australia. Where in America, there's a, a number of uh, greyhound farmers that their whole but their, their Melbourne Cup is to top the auction and to get a couple of hundred thousand out of that auction. Um, and it, it's an interesting concept. And, and as I said, that we try to you know, uh, replicate that a little bit. I know that you were pretty big too on the Bendigo Ready to Race auction and, and things like that happening here. Do you think we need to do more of that in, in Australia? Because we do have the odd puppy auction, for example, but like you say, to create almost an industry within an industry to have those, as you call them, greyhound farmers where they're, they're breeding the litter, they're rearing the litter, not worried about racing but trying to get top dollar at an auction. That is where they make their money. Do, do you think there's a, a spot for that here in Australia? Uh, it absolutely is. I think we're crying out. There's so many people would love to get into greyhound racing in Australia as owners, but find it really difficult to, to know where to start, who to ring up, how to get a dog, uh, where to be reared, the rest of it. But the, the problem I find is in, in America, they were very proud to put their very best dog in and hope they top the auction. I feel that the auctions in Australia, whether it's Bendigo or other places, is there's they become a cheap option because people try to keep the best two and put the rest in, mm. and that's not the way to go. So we needed, as you say, an industry within an industry where uh, the very best dogs off those farms go into that auction so that the owners can be confident um, that they're getting, they're getting value for money. And as we wrap up the segment chatting about the US, would you say – as a whole, the, the time that you spent in the US set up with that kennel was, was rewarding and, and worthwhile? The whole thing was brilliant. It's not just the, uh, the, the, the racing and the breeding over there, but the, the, the friendships and the amount of people that I met. The, the, uh, it's so great to sit and listen to you know, the, the best people in America, the best people in Ireland, and I'm talking to the Don Cuddies and the Pat Daltons and the Don Ryan of this world that... Um, they're just legendary, and and you know you just you glued to every word they say, and I've I valued that more than the, the running of the the farm. So 
yeah, it's uh, sad that it's finishing, but I'm getting any older too, and it's uh, getting harder just to run one kennel. <laughs> well, I'm only, what am I, 30, and I'm struggling with one as well, Rob, so <laughs> I don't blame you, mate. So let's turn our attention now to more recent times, Rob, and, and have a listen to this very, very special win at Sandown Park. Racing. Fantabelle began fast. Petunia Manelli left running and through in the centre. Champagne Sally fourth onto the first turn with Zipping Lady. Two and a half lengths away. Packy keeping from Ebby Ripper. Then moment to jive and Rockoon is last of all with a round to go in the bold trees. Petunia Manelli is the leader. Fantabelle has some room on the inside. Champagne Sally a length off in third and fourth. Packy keeping. Then Zipping Lady followed by moment to jive. Ebby Ripper and Rockoon. But Fantabelle the champ. She went to the lead off the back. She's three lengths in front of Packy keeping running on then Petunia Manelli zipping Lady next Raccoon is well back around the turn it's Fantabale in front Packy keeping tries hard the third millionaire Fantabale she won the bold tree she beat Packy keeping oh, Ripper. I'm almost getting goosebumps watching and listening to that audio the crowd they were lined up around the home corner, on the grass. They were, they were all wanting to see a, a piece of the new millionaire, Fanta Bale. Can we chat about that night and then Fanta Bale? How good was that? Because I think she she'd, uh, was heading for the million at the Meadows maybe a couple of starts earlier, and uh, she ran second. No, she might have ran fourth, actually. And uh, so everyone was down. You felt you felt really guilty. You felt as though that you let everyone down. <laughs> but, uh, but no, it was great. Look, and there was not many disappointments with her she along the way uh, she was the perfect dog really uh, she she did everything you could ask for in a dog where she jumped well she chased really hard she was sound and, and she could stay so um, you know she gave us a hell of a ride how do you rate her career sitting back now knowing what she was able to do winning group ones over the sprint the Oz Cup and then and then group ones over the staying trip and she she was just the, the model of consistency. And, and to do that, she would have to go down as probably the most versatile greyhound that I've seen. Uh, just It must have been an incredible journey being her trainer. It was. You know, at the time, you don't sort of think of it as much. You, you just go from one race to the other. But, you know, you think back and you say, well, how the hell did she win nine group ones? And <laughs> it really, uh, you know, it really is a buzz to have trained her, you know, so I'm really pleased to have been able to have her. But um, as I said before, um, she probably never, she clearly won't go down as the fastest greyhound of all time. But I tell you what, there's not many that had her habits. Everything, it, it wasn't one thing that didn't tick the box. Mm. She could travel, she could run over any distance. And I was just going through her form just a moment ago. And it's almost every second or third start, mostly every second start, that she's racing in a group race. Like, she she was just at the best of the best every single time she stepped out on the track. And, and she very, very rarely put in a... Well, she never put in a bad run, barring bad luck. Yeah, exactly. And it, I think there's a number of times where uh, in the run you thought something had her, or, but... She 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 just knuckled down. She get the job done, and you know I don't think I've ever had another dog that had that will to win like her. Um, and it, again, um, she came along at a time I don't think there was a tornado tears around, or there wasn't a, a space star or a dog like that. So she was a little bit lucky in that respect. But at the same time, you, you can only beat who you have who you can beat. Um, and as I say, she did win over five hundred as well over group group racing and. Again, she did it off the pink at the Meadows too, so that's not, mm. not easy. 
She was an incredible dog, and like you say, doing it off the pink at the Meadows, over 500 when you are a stayer as well is just extraordinary looking back. Now, you were a trailblazer in the sense you see me, Typhoon, coming across. We see so much more of that now with, with greyhounds from, from overseas coming to Australia. That there, there was always the odd stud dog, the odd broody here and there, but to, to, to then go and bring one back like you see me, Typhoon, to have a litter to David Bale, produce Fanta Bale, is, is that where the... the connection with Paul Wheeler began? Uh, before that, I'd, I'd seen Paul overseas a number of times and actually I trained for, I was one of the very first person, people to train for Paul going back before he had the big kennel. Um, I had a couple of dogs, one called Aquin, uh, sorry, uh, Aquin Bale, another one called Braemar Bale, one of a uh, Cranbourne Puppy Classic and I think Aquin Bale won a Lizarine Classic. But in those days, he'd send two dogs down and um, you know, it went well, but then all of a sudden he wanted to send 20 down and I couldn't, I couldn't, um, cope with that. I wasn't, uh, equipped to take 20 dogs at a time. And that's when the Graham Bates and the Dailies and that came in. <coughs> Sorry. And, uh, and, uh, had that successful run with Paul. But again, as I said, I've known Paul for many years and, uh, uh he's been overseas at the same time as us. And what actually happened, I was, I'd bought, I was at the auctions in Abilene in Kansas when I met Paul um, and I said to him at the time, I said, look, what are you doing here? And he said, look, I'm come over to try and buy some brood bitches. And I said, I've got a couple at home. I said, you might be interested in. And that was You See Me Typhoon. So that's how it started. And obviously looking back now, Paul, since passed, it, it must have been great to to share a, a greyhound-like Fandabar with him and go on that journey together with, a, with an icon of the sport. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, like, again, as I said, I spoke about the icons of overseas. Well, Paul was the icon of Australia. There's no doubt about that. Um, and again, enjoy the ride with people is great. And at the same time, you see me, Typhoon was, uh, I bought it, but we had other partners in there as well, which John Hutchison and Sandy Matheson. And, and we all went down on the ride together. And, uh, it was, Again, it's not always about the money. It's about uh, sharing the ride with friends, and I found that that's the most rewarding thing in greyhound racing. Now, from Fanta Bale, we move very, very quickly to Tornado Tears, Rip and Sam, two of the oh, the most quirkiest greyhounds I think we've come across, but two of the fastest when it comes to staying racing. Rob, how would you describe that next phase of your training career with greyhounds like Tornado Tears and Rip and Sam? Uh, look, it was a dream ride, really, for... Um, Fanta Bale to retire and uh, Tornado Tears to basically come along the next week um, and and, and uh, Rip and Sam. And look, uh, I've trained for Michael Ivers and, and Helen Ivers for many, many years and their line is just sensational. It goes right back to the 80s um, and you go right through. Peter Giles that was the king of the stayers um, all those years ago. And when you look back, he had all these same lines. And so it's just been a tremendous line, and they're a dominant staying line. And that's that's the, you know, Tornado Tears was uh, clearly at, at his time he was uh, head and shoulders above the other stayers. Uh, but at about three years old, for whatever reason, he just flicked the switch and he didn't seem to want to run again. But he did win another group race after that. Um, but that was, but as I said, it was hard going the last year. But the the ability was always there, so we kept trying and trying, and I was. In the end, we did win another group race, so it sort of panned out. And who was the better of the two? And if you were to solo trial them, was there much between Tornado Tears and Rip and Sam? 
No, I, I've always always felt that uh, Tornado Tear had his measure, had uh, Rick and Sam's measure, but but not by much. And it was probably just the fact that he could get to the front and get that couple of lengths on him. Right on the line, I felt that Tornado Tears was going that touch better. Mm. Yeah, they both had wonderful careers, didn't they? Hey, you mentioned a minute ago King of the Stayers, Peter Giles. What a what a tremendous uh, icon yeah. again of, of Greyhound Racing. I would put that quote to your name, Rob Britton, as the King of the Stayers. And you've, you've just had this incredible knack of producing high-quality stayers for such a long time. As long as I can remember, uh, as we spoke about some of the most recent years, Vandervale, Here's Tears, Tornado Tears, Rip and Sam... What's the what's the trick? What's the key? How how do you get these greyhounds? Develop them into stayers, and then have the success that you do. I, I think that I hit the nail on the head before when I said that uh, Michael Ivers produced all those dogs right back to eighty. Now Peter had them, and then I had them. And what actually happens? You get some success with a stayer, and the first or one of the first ones I had was, and he's probably as good as all of them was Space Star mm. and and Nelly Noodles. Now. Um, what actually happens is you get a bit of a reputation with a stayer. So someone interstate's got a stayer and they said they send it to you. So it's a little bit of luck involved, but you because you've had success with a stayer, someone sends you another one. So that sort of helps because you can't make stayers. I don't. There's no secret to making a dog run 700 when they can't. Um, and I don't believe we work our dogs, our stayers, any harder than we do our uh, sprinters, so it's not a fitness thing. It's just a matter of having them, having them, at the, you know, fit enough, uh, that them having the breeding to stay and being lucky enough to that the right ones come along. And, and as I said, it's no coincidence that a lot of them are in the same line. Mm. Well, Space Star, obviously, that the first of that, you know, incredible run of, of dogs from that that Ivers line, it just continued. But it is interesting. You say that they're not worked any different, so it's up to the greyhound to show that they can stay. You'd effectively work them the same. Do you, do you trial them differently if you think they are going to be a stayer? Do they run further distances in trials? Like, how, how do you make that, that call that, yep, this is a stayer, or do you, do you put them in races over longer distances and then slowly build them up? What's the, the, the way of finding out if uh, they can stay? Not a lot of difference. The only thing I would say is a lot of dogs uh, that are distance dogs uh, struggle to lead over short course racing. Uh, and if you can't lead, sometimes dogs lose confidence pretty quickly. So I tend to try to find a distance for them that's not going to knock them about that can get them up near the front, those type of dogs. So, for example, I like to start my, you know, 18-month, 19-month-old strong dogs over 500 metres and, and, and as quickly as I can get them up to 600 so that they're on pace most of the time because... You know, confidence is a great thing in greyhound racing, and if they get knocked back in the pack for too long, uh, you know, you've got other issues that come into it. So you've got to try to keep their confidence up all the time until they can get up in in, in ground. And without giving away everything that you do, Rob, what with a greyhound like Tornado Tears, what would he do week to week? Let's say he's racing in a heat of the bold trees and then a final. Is there trials in between, or is it just simple as, you know, just galloping like you would, say, a sprinter? I very, very rarely trial any of my um, race dogs, uh, only with the pre-trainers that are trialled. Um, I've, I've got, my runs are uh, about 200 and, 250, 280 metres long, and they're side-by-side uh, side with a gap in the middle. Um, and the dogs would go in there, so if they raced on a Saturday night, they had Sunday off, 
they go in there Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and have Friday off before the next race. Um, and they may do they may do a thousand metres. Um, they may do a little bit more, a little bit less. Uh, but again, I use a motorbike to stretch them out, but they're not doing it at a hundred percent. They're doing most things at eighty percent. So you can, you know, you, you judge it by a dog. If they're doing it flat out, you back off. If you if they're um, doing it at eighty percent, you can keep going until they because they've had enough. But again, um, they work hard, but they don't. Isn't we very rarely get an injury during training simply because we believe they're doing it really at eighty percent. The setup itself, you've got obviously the the man with the greatest uh, facial hair in greyhound racing, <laughs> Peter Riley. I mean, I was on the the Good Friday coverage recently, and we're able to get the cameraman to zoom in. I, I don't know if Peter's aware of this, but we actually had a camera <laughs> following him at, at Geelong the other night. Uh, <laughs> isn't he a great uh, a great person in greyhound racing? And speaking of icons, although the greyhounds aren't in his name, you can tell as a as a viewer, as a fan, that he's he's really part of the team down there at the uh, the Rob Britton Kennels. Yeah, certainly. Peter's been with me for 10 to 12 years now. and um, I, I prefer not to go to the dogs, and Peter goes to the dogs. Uh, Tim, my son, now he's back from America. He's he's with us, and I have uh, Sandra as a part-timer. Uh, Sandra Etheridge comes in, does a bit of work and a bit of cleaning. Uh, Brendan Purcell, I work at, he's up the back of my place, and we, we do work our dogs together, and uh, he helps me and I help him. Um, so that's that's the team. But uh, it's as I said, Peter's been very good. He's been with us a long time and enjoys going to the races. And uh, to be quite honest, um, it's very hard to burn the candle at both both ends. So I prefer to do the work at home and do all the trialing, and he does most of the racing. It's probably the key to success, that isn't it? Uh, knowing what you're capable of doing and, and having the help around to to be able to do that. Yeah, and, and the confidence in the people that they're going to do the job. Now, you've been involved in greyhound racing just about your whole life, Rob, uh, born into the sport almost. What What is the, the greatest thrill that you've had over the years? Is it Phantom Bale, Tornado Tears, as you said a few earlier when you first combined with Paul Willer? What, what, what's been the highlight of, of your career, if you can pick one? Uh, it might sound stupid, but um, they're all great things. They're fantastic. But I had a dog called Born a Hula Hero, um, that he, the owner purchased him after he won a race in Ireland. Uh, we came out here and we won a number of races in you know, Melbourne, Sydney, um, Adelaide. I then sent him to America for the million-dollar race. He went down to uh, Palm Beach and he won there. I came, brought him back to Australia and won again in New South and in Victoria. And uh, to me, it was just a mar- just a marvellous ride to have a dog that would do all that. And again, he was nowhere near in the, the league of the dogs you just mentioned. But, but to me, that was a thrill in that uh, he set us on a journey. And uh, it's just something that, uh, um, you know, it'll never be repeated. I think that's something so many people want to uh, to aspire to do. Go on that journey, whether it not be the most successful journey. And, and I guess for, for young owners who are looking at getting involved in greyhound racing, I, I guess you'd push to, to do that. Sometimes it's not about the money. It's about you know enjoying a journey, whether it be with family, with mates, or, or whatever it may be. But that's what greyhound racing can do. It, it can change your life in the sense that you can go on that journey with that dog. Absolutely. And it's the people you meet along the way too. It's, it's a great journey. 
And, and I always say to people, um, if you try to aspire to do these things, whether it be um, to, to race a dog overseas or to, um, to go coursing and win a Waterloo Cup, it, it's, it, it creates a, um, stops the boring, you know, from year to year, greyhound racing can be very much the same. And to, by doing those things, you're uh, always keeping your interest up and, and creating new challenges. I've done exactly that. I went to Tamora uh, a few years ago, Rob, with uh, with a greyhound. He, he won a heat of the cup, and it was for some reason it was my lifelong goal. I just wanted to to make the Tamora Cup. I didn't care if I ran last in the final. I I, I just really wanted to be a part of the race for some reason. The year before, I sat on the couch at home, bawling my eyes out. Like this is this is it's it's a weird <laughs> fetish, I guess you could say, that I have with the Tamora Cup. But the next year, I made it, and we won a heat of the cup on the Sunday night up there. And, and, and there were some really strong races that were starting to elevate into, I guess, the, the race that it is, you know, this year as well, where we saw She's a Pearl go around in, in the series. But uh, that feeling of, of almost, you know, planning something and then being able to pull it off, it's a, it's a pretty special feeling. Is there a race in mind that right now you sit there and, and knowing that you've done what you've done, is there a race that, that still you haven't been able to get to that you really want a piece of? I think I'd love to win a Melbourne Cup. Um, it's not going to be something that's ever going to worry me, but um, it's one of those races where uh, I've run second in it probably, I can't remember, maybe three or four times. Um, we've been in it a stack of times. It's um, just, just just for some reason, uh, haven't gone right on the night. But again, um, you know, I don't worry about those things, to tell you the truth. It's just that uh, it would be nice to win one. Yeah, I think that's the top of everyone's list, and, and more recently, the Million Dollar Chase is one that the uh, the punters are trying to get their hands on as well. Hey, just before we let you go on what's been, I reckon, just about one of my favourite deep dives, Rob, but I won't let you know it's only my second one, but uh, what what do you do outside of greyhound racing? What what makes the heart tick? What uh, what do you like to do when you're you're away from the track and the dogs? Uh, I, I'm going through a... What do you, what do you call it? Um, um, not a second childhood, a... I've just bought a classic car, so um, that's going to be my aim now to muck around that and just go for cruising, a bit of a cruising. So uh, I've got a 57 uh, Thunderbird, so um, it's, uh, that's going to be my bit of fun for the next couple of years. If they call that the midlife crisis, don't they, Rob? Midlife crisis, that's the word <laughs> I was trying to think No, well, that's all good, mate. Hey, you've, uh, you've worked hard. I'm sure you can enjoy some uh, some more time on the road, I guess, uh, rolling around in the Firebird, that's for sure. Hey, Firebird or Thunderbird? Uh, Thunderbird, yeah. Yeah, I thought I got that one wrong, so the Firebird. Hey, uh, just as I let you go, mate, what's, uh, what's the favourite food and drink? If you're sitting back at the pub or, or wherever you might be watching the races, what will you tuck into? Uh, pretty plain. I think I, I love a steak and I love a beer. So that's uh, uh, that's about me. I'm 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 not too fussy about uh, food to tell you the truth. Uh, I always say I uh, I eat to live. I don't live to eat. <laughs> I think I'm the opposite, mate. That's why I'm the size I am. Hey, it's been a great chat, uh, Rob. Really appreciate your time, mate. Good luck, and and I hope you can snaffle that Melbourne Cup down the track to uh, to add to what is an incredible trophy cabinet already. Good on you. Thanks, James. A sensational person and a terrific greyhound trainer and conditioner, one of the best 
uh, in the modern era, Robert Britton. What a wonderful chat it's been, getting to know him. And uh, a big thanks as well to Rob, not only for coming on the podcast, but giving away plenty of, uh, of training secrets, I guess you could call them, to the success that he's had over the years. Well, if you have a person that you'd love us to do a deep dive on, a Greyhound participant, let us know through the GRV socials. Uh, jump onto GRV's Instagram, send a message to that channel and let them know who you'd love us to have a chat with next time. That's all we have for this bonus episode. Until next time, punters, as always, safe traveling and happy punting.